This episode of Lucky Paper Radio is brought to you by Proxies. While every other magic podcast is trying to get you to buy cards from whatever site sponsors them, with a confusing array of coupon codes and unique URLs, allow us to be the one show to tell you that you can just write Jace the Mind Sculptor on an island with a Sharpie if you want. No one's going to haul you away to prison for doing so. Thanks, Proxies, for sponsoring this episode. Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, the lone co-host of Lucky Paper Radio, Maddox. It's a little bit of a quieter podcast this oh, week. Oh, I gotta say, I, I really had a lot of fun last weekend, but it is nice to be back in the studio with just you and not 12 people. That was quite a bit to handle. Yeah, it was a great weekend. I definitely had to, uh, I had planned to take a day off of work in advance, uh, which was You're a smart. good idea because I just needed to anti-socialize for a day, yeah. especially after, you know, yeah. not leaving the house and seeing people for two years or however long it's been. Yeah, it was a lot, but still fun nonetheless. I'm glad people came down and played some Cube, and I hope that the episode last week wasn't too insufferable. Based on the download numbers, it seems like it was pretty insufferable. But oh, no. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's weird. I don't know how that works. It's a very common thing in podcasts where if you have a, a bad episode, maybe the audio is messed up or something screwed up, you get less downloads on it. But how does anyone know until they've downloaded the episode to find out? Algorithms. I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know how that happens, but... We're back in the studio today. We're doing a normal episode of Lucky Paper Radio, which is to say we're going to be sinking our teeth into some weird abstract magic theory. Specifically on this episode, we're going to be talking about one drops, one mana spells. Are one drops and one mana spells the same thing? And how this unique mana cost demands, I think, specific attention in cube design that is perhaps distinct from other mana values along the curve. So we'll get to that after we do our pack. We'll pick one from a listener submitted cube. Our cube this week is an interesting one. It comes to us from listener Donato, and this is a cube that is a very old school cube. It's designed to be to feel like playing Magic in 1996, as Donato puts it. But importantly, before drafting the regular cube, everyone gets to draft a pack of Vanguard cards. Anthony, do you know the history of Vanguard cards? I feel like it's something you might know. I don't know if I know the history so much, but I know there were a set of cards that all give you... It's sort of like a companion. You start the game with some special rules, uh, like an emblem in play, uh, and they also modify your starting life total and starting hand size. I don't really know how they were like originally released or packaged. Okay, I don't either. Maybe we should have Googled that. I'm not sure. It's, it seems like it was... They are not legal magic cards in any sense. You can't play them in any format of anything. But they were made by Wizards of the Coast, and it seems like it was a supplemental, different way to play Magic, along the lines of like a Plains Chase kind yeah. of thing, where it was like, here's a different kind of set of cards you can play Magic with. And the actual cards are even that large, oversized format. Oh, they are. They're cool, oversized. Yeah. That explains why the text is so small in them in Scryfall. That makes a lot of sense that they're oversized. So before we do the regular Pack 1 Pick 1, we're going to do a Pack 1 Pick 1 from a three-card Vanguard pack. This might be a little hard to follow, but I think we can maybe help people along the way. So... Our Vanguard cards are Selenia, Hannah, and Tangarth. Selenia gives all of our creatures vigilance and also modifies our starting hand size to be a one additional card and our starting life total to be 27 instead of 20. And these cards all just start in play in the command zone. They can't be interacted with. You just you don't have to pay any cost for them. They just affect your basically starting state of the game. So give all your creatures vigilance, additional card in your hand, and seven more life. Already seems very powerful to me. Definitely. I mean, this is the pick so far. <laughs> <laughs> then we got Hannah, 
This one says your spells cost one less to play. Now that I'm interested in. Also gives us an additional card in our starting hand, but our life total is starting at 15 instead of 20. And then we have Tangarth. This says your creatures are unaffected by summoning sickness. Everybody has haste. One less card in our starting hand and seven additional life. So starting at 27. That one seems a little weird to me. The the like it feels like an aggro card in the sort of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. smaller hand size. But then you start size. with a bunch of extra life. And then you just get 27 extra or seven points of extra life, which is which is a, a decent chunk. Anthony, what's your pick out of these three Vanguard cards before we dive into this cube draft? So I feel pretty confident in my choice here, actually. I think that it's a little bit difficult to evaluate because I haven't played with these cards before, and it's like a really warping effect, right? Like, it really just changes the whole game. And we've talked about companions and how big of an impact it is that you always have access to them. It's not like one card in your deck that you sometimes draw, sometimes don't. Uh, And these are all really powerful effects. But I think that Hannah giving you a cost reduction on all of your spells is kind of insane. I can't imagine this is not the most busted one. And I'm really shocked when I looked down. I was like, okay, well, clearly you're going to start with three less cards in hand or something. But no, she even gives you an extra card. So it's kind of like a, can we call it a colorless moxen that always draws you two cards uh, and is always in your opening hand? Yes, and I, actually, I it's even you better if you're that. double spelling. So I think that's pretty clearly the most powerful one here. I definitely agree in a vacuum. I think if I had not looked at the cube prior to this, I would be taking Hannah not close, like way better than the other ones. However, I'm going to be a little spicy here. I'm going to metagame this a little bit. The 96 cube, the cards are pound for pound pretty poor by modern power level standards. This is the kind of game we are going to be winning with like a four mana, two, four flyer or something. Uh, The bodies are really unimpressive. And I think this effect, this making spells cost less mana does scale with the power of the environment. You know, just taking Hannah for, before drafting my own cube or your regular cube would by far be the most powerful one, not even close. I think in this environment, I actually might start on Selenia, which is spicy. I'm, I'm metagaming this. I'm taking a risk here. But I'm going to take Selenia and just assume that my win condition here is going to be overcosted bodies. And because the bodies are so overcosted and so slow, I don't really think tempo is going to matter that much. I just want to have... Selenia, which gives all my creatures a significant boost with Vigilance. And then I'm going to take fairly static. I mean, spoiler alert for what I'm going to take out of this next pack, probably. I'm going to take reasonably static creatures and just try and build like a fair magic deck. I don't know if I agree with that. Just because, I mean, mean, your logic makes sense. But at the same time, if my opponent plays uh, a creature and I can just play a much bigger creature because all my spells are cheaper... Like, that just seems like a much better defense than Vigilance. But the question is, how much bigger is your creature for one additional well, generic mana? I mean, great, great question. In 1996, I don't think much. I think it was kind of a, a coin flip where another creature was even bigger. It could even be smaller for more generic mana, as far as you know. Fair enough. Things well, get wild. Let's look at this actual pack, though. And uh, I had to read a lot of these cards, Anthony. I, I assume you're in the same boat. So we're only going to touch on the rules text of the cards we're considering, but I will read the pack now. Pack is Helm of Obedience, Carapace, Witch Hunter, Sustaining Spirit, Order of the White Shield, Pox, Forgotten Lore, Balduvian Barbarians, Mystic Remora, Mana Barbs, Force of Will, Azure Drake, Withering Wisps, Pyroclasm, and Mud Slide. You've got Hannah, Anthony. All your spells cost one less to cast. What are you taking out of this pack? Well, now I kind of regret that because one card really stands out to me. And and to be 
uh, or to, to qualify this, I definitely don't have an, a lot of experience playing with these really old cards. Yeah, I think we're going to do a bad job at this pack. But pick one. even with that, Order of the White Shield really stands out as the most potent card here to me by a pretty wide margin. I agree with you completely. Uh, I mean, the other cards that are like noteworthy in terms of... I mean, I think here we have to just talk about cards that clear a baseline level of playability, like better than a basic land in your deck. Not to be too exaggerated about this, but hey, like... basic lands are great magic cards. It's a high bar, to, high bar to pass. Carapace is a card I do not want to put in any magic deck. Witch Hunter is a card I do... It's a four mana, one, one, that you can tap to deal one damage just to target player or pay one white, white to tap it and return target creature and opponent controls to its owner's hand. All white. Very weird card, but... I have no intention of putting this card in my deck. I would probably sooner run another planes, I think. Which is why I agree with you completely. Order of the White Shield, which is white white for a two one pro black. You can pay white to give it first strike to end of turn, and you can pay white white to give it plus one plus oh until end of turn. I think that is head head and shoulders above the other cards of this environment. Now, I say that, I mean I play Force of Will and I play Pyroclasm in my current fairly powerful cube. I don't play Order of the White Shield. But in this context, Pyroclasm, I don't think it's going to be that effective because I don't imagine there's going to be a really go... Actually, there probably is going to be a pretty sick Thalid deck in this cube. Thalids were good back in the day. Yeah, Pyroclasm actually stands out to me as maybe the next most potent. I would have to think more about Pox, I think. But like the, the restrictive casting cost, and I don't think there's a way to really break that symmetry. Um, but Pyroclasm seems pretty easy to break the symmetry on. Just wait. Yeah, just wait a just little wait bit. Just wait till your opponent plays their 4-mana 1-1 one, one, and then Pyroclasm them. Boom, got them. And then Force of Will, I think this card is also probably up there in terms of picks in this pack, just because, again, the card does things. I'd rather have it in my deck than a basic land, but it's rough in an environment where you don't have important stuff to answer on the first couple turns of the game. You're kind of basically looking at a five-mana counterspell. This yeah. is not an environment where I'm going to want to two-for-all myself, I, is, is what I mean to say. Yeah, it's it's really funny how Force of Will just scales inversely to the, the power level of the environment. If, if it's really fast and people are doing broken stuff very early, uh, then you know losing that, that card parity is is worth it just to stay alive. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, Is Force of Will even playable in my own cube, which is just like a little bit above retail limited power level? I, for a long time, was of the opinion that Force of Will was not really playable outside of combo or really broken power-focused environments. And I've come around on that a little bit. I think it will be playable in your regular queue okay. because it is still just a, a modal spell. I mean, true. the five-mana counterspell will be used a lot more in your cube than I think it's used in my cube or certainly it's used in like the Magic Online Vintage cube. But having that option to just like, oh, my opponent did, you know, I, I tapped out, then my opponent did play their Archfiend of Ifnir, and now I can force a will it. Like, that's a good option to have to answer. I guess that's not in the cube anymore, but whatever the power outliers are these days, uh, being able to answer those if you need to is good modality on a five-mana counter spell, which is a, a bad rate. But right. if you're countering a five-mana spell, then it's one for one, even on tempo, you're, you're fine. It's just that that doesn't come up very often. You usually want to counter things earlier on in the game. But I would play it in your cube. I would put it in my deck. All right, but here I think it's even worse. Here I think it's it's even worse, yes. Although it is worth noting here that I expect a lot of the important plays of the game will come at five mana and above, like turn five and later. So I don't actually really know how to evaluate it. I think, I think honestly, this cube is different enough from all the magic you and I have ever played that I, I'm not confident at all in the kinds of picks we're making here. I mean, I, we've, we've done pack one pick ones of old school cubes here before. I've played an old school cube once before. This is much less powerful even than an old school cube because we're get, looking at really just like alpha, beta, unlimited cards, pretty much. So really limited picks here. I'm very excited to get the Order of the White Shield. Those knights, the uh, the black and white knights in early magic were notoriously very powerful. 
And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to gamble and take that Selenia Vanguard and hope that the generic mana reduction on casting my opponent's Witch Hunters or whatever is just not going to matter when they have Hannah. Could be totally wrong. I agree in a vacuum, Hannah is enormously more powerful than Selenia or Tangarth. Yeah, I think I'm also, even with my Vanguard pick, still going to take Order of the White Shield. Because, uh, I mean, alternatively, I'm looking at, okay, Balduvian Barbarians now cost red red with uh, with that Vanguard card. But I, I'd still rather have the, the Knight. Right, and that's kind of what I meant by the the one generic mana reduction maybe not mattering that much. How much are you going to be able to multi-spell in this environment? I actually don't know. We'll find out. We won't. We're not actually playing the cube. <laughs> but uh, but I'm curious to know, Donato, if you, if you agree with us. So maybe uh, write in, give us a follow-up on what you would have taken out of this pack because I'm sure you have much more experience with this environment than we do. But yeah, I'm, I feel a little bit lost and I'm happy to see a 2-mana two 2-1 that I can give first strike and pump in the first pack because it feels like a nice safe pick. Thanks, Donato, for sending in your cube. If you want to have your cube on Lucky Paper Radio, you can send it to me at luckypaper.co and we will draft it on the air. One drops, Anthony. Who needs them? We have different views on one mana spells, I think. This episode is actually inspired by a semi-recent episode of Constructed Resources where offhandedly, uh, I think Andrew Beckstrom mentioned that the the one mana spells in a constructed format are especially important in defining the texture and shape of that format. Like whatever one mana spells you can play really help define what makes a constructed format feel like the metagame, right? It, it helps define what the, what the available decks are and set some boundaries on how the format plays. I think a lot about trying to lower my mana curve in my cube, as we've talked about in this show many times before. So in that sense, I have thought about one mana spells quite a bit, but I do think they're kind of unique because they're, they're defining nature, right? Like a one mana spell. Uh, and maybe we should separate, we could talk a little bit about the difference between proactive one mana spells and reactive one mana spells, but any spell that costs one mana is the cheapest thing you can do in magic with rare exception you do have zero mana spells sometimes these zero mana cards they do come up you have some free cards out there but it's the cheapest thing you can do in magic from a mana perspective and that is the resource that governs the tempo of the game right it's the the atomic unit of the resource system right exactly and because of that the next cheapest thing you can do costs twice as much mana like the the relative difference in mana cost between a one mana spell and a two mana spell is a hundred percent compared to the jump between two and three is 50%. The jump between three and four is uh, 33%. And, you know, it just gets smaller from there. So I think in that sense, the specifically like talking about your curve in terms of what are your one mana spells and what are the rest of your spells can be somewhat relevant because those spells are so important because they're so much cheaper than the next most expensive things. I, I don't think I disagree with any of that. I mean, I think it's really important to, when you're designing a cube, uh, to, to think about sort of the texture of the way that games can be sequenced and how people are going to assemble their deck. As a player, obviously, I totally agree that, that yeah, they're powerful and they, they are what sort of structures the foundation of a lot of cards, or sorry, a lot of decks. And, and like we talked about recently, the, the cheap cards are really what make a format feel the way it feels because you just are going to see them so much more. Yeah, uh, you know, you get cast more... Six drops can have a big impact on games, but you're just not getting to six mana every game. And also, a lot of times, six drops just end the game, so they spend no real turns in play. Like, you cast your six drop, and then it's in the turn for one... It's in there, play for therefore, one Therefore, they are bad. Well, no, I, I think it's. I think that's important. Like, the number of turns that a card spends in play is also going to scale with the cheaper spells, because the cheaper ones are going to be cast earlier and also stick around for the duration of the game, whereas the ones that are more expensive will naturally come towards the end of the game where there's not that many turns left. So that does change the way that like 
people have talked about this in terms of like you look at six mana planeswalkers like uh Elspeth Sun's champion or some people really like Will Kenrith or Liliana, these big six mana bomby planeswalkers. My perspective on those has always been in my environment, like, yeah, they should be like oppressive to play against because you've gotten to six mana, the game should be over soon, right? Like the game should hinge on six mana spells if if you get to that point in the game. Either your opponent counters it, they remove it, or you get to win the game with it because that's what those cards effectively should do. And so in yeah, that sense, I mean, it doesn't I mean, really matter back. mechanically what they do, except that it's win the game, right? Like, those Planeswalkers can kind of be interchangeable because at that point, like, the game's going to be over in a couple of turns anyway, and so whatever they're doing is not going to have a huge impact on the board state and the decisions your players are making about how things actually play out. Yeah, I mean, I would add the caveat just that Six mana should win the game is definitely a matter of taste. Like, if right, that's right. what you're designing your cube yeah. around, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's going to come up with this whole topic is that a lot of it is up to, to sort of what kind of gameplay you're looking for. Yeah, some of it is, but the, the math is not, right? No matter what kind of gameplay you're looking for, a one mana spell is still half the cost of a two mana spell. And it's going to be way easier to multi-spell with one mana spells. What? The, the turbo cube disagrees <laughs> i mean in that, no you're right you've you're just right. changed what what one and two mana spells are there like there three drops are now one mana spells and four drops are two mana spells and in that environment four drops are so much worse than three drops yes although one drops might still be better than two drops if your opponent has thalia think about it it's true <laughs> it, it can come up it can happen so you mentioned that it's important to think about how the decks in your format might sequencer plays and how games might play out and i agree i think that's actually one of the frames i like thinking about one drops the most in which is like thinking about the different kind of decks you want to support and whether that's for you in terms of like color pairs like you know the 10 guild combinations or whether that's in terms of big macro archetypes like you're thinking aggro agnostic of color you're thinking mid-range agnostic of color you're thinking control agnostic of color whatever you however you think about the sort of groups of decks in your environment Thinking about what you want them to do first, the first spell they cast, I think is a really important lens to consider when you're thinking about your environment. I have answers for these from my environment. And I think I'm curious if you've ever thought about this perspective in the game. Like, if you ever thought about, like, what's the first play my, my decks are making? And if you have what those answers are for you. I'll give you time to think about it, though. Well, I'll give mine. So I actually, in terms of, like, what the first thing my decks are doing in each game... I think in that sort of second frame. So I'm thinking aggro, mid-range, control are kind of the three big buckets I put the decks in my cube into. I don't support anything that really resembles combo. I have no win-the-game combos. that You can argue that's a fourth archetype. It's not supported in my cube, even if it's a thing by your definition of that, of that word. So for me, my aggro decks, I want the first thing they do to be to play a threat. I want them to put something on board to threaten their opponent. And that means usually a one-drop creature. Uh, and that can be, in my environment, in white, red, or black, you can be playing an aggressive, threatening one-drop creature. So that's what I want my aggressive decks to be doing. It's probably the most straightforward thing. The first thing they're going to do is start threatening their opponent. Mid-range decks in my environment. I think of mid-range as kind of like the switch hitter of the sort of deck archetypes. I think if mid-range is playing against control, the first thing it wants to do is also start to land a threat and start to pressure their opponent. And if they're playing against aggro, the first thing I want them to do is, instead of doing that, play something that will either stifle their opponent's development or a removal spell to actually stop their opponent's development and like start trading and, and getting more time in the game. And so there, I think mid-range decks in my environment on turn one either want to be doing some sort of card selection to set up for whatever the thing that they're going to be responding to is. Like if, if their opponent ends up being an aggro deck, you use some card selection to find that removal spell, find that two drop that blocks really well or whatever. They want to be playing some ramp, which basically says, like, no matter what your strategy is, I'm going to accelerate my own strategy so that I can 
you know, get a tempo advantage on the next interaction, whatever that might be. Or in some cases, if they're on the draw, actually just play a removal spell. Uh, or if, you know, they get to turn two before they make their first play, just remove their opponent's threat and just start off the game by clearing things off. So mid-range is a little harder to find. I think that covers a bigger, a broader range of what you can possibly do in the first couple turns of the game, but the first action can be. But that's what I expect there. And the control decks are, are the other extreme end of the spectrum. My, my control decks, I never expect them to play an early threat, ever, basically. And what I expect them to do in the early turns of the game is really just watch their opponent develop their board and make sure that they develop uh, a nice curve of reasonable answers and hold up mana to respond at the appropriate times. And so for my control decks, the first thing I really want them to do is either hold up removal or interaction, whether that be a counter spell or removal spell, whatever, or cast some sort of card selection, card advantage, hand smoothing cantrip or something to basically say, all right, while I'm waiting to see how this game is going to play out and how I ought to use my removal, how I ought to use my counter spells, I'm going to be making sure I hit my land drops, making sure that I you know, keep my five mana spells buried in my deck for a while because I don't want to draw them right now. I want to draw them later in the game. Just kind of making sure the game plays out smoothly until they know how they want to actually use their threats. Do you have anything like this in your head for your cube, for what you expect your decks to do as their sort of first action in a game? Definitely. And, and it makes a lot of sense, actually, as soon as you like bring up a uh, ramp versus a proactive creature, that there really is a difference in sort of like, what's your whole game plan for this deck, what's for this particular match? Thing? What's your whole you thing? You gotta figure out what your thing is. Figure out what you do! You had all summer to think of it! And it, it starts with the first action you take in the game, right? Like, mm -hmm. if, if my first action doesn't fit with my plan, then it, that just is a weird space to be in. So that, that totally makes sense. Uh, in my own cube, I, I do feel similarly in terms of, you know, I expect proactive decks to be starting with a creature and slower decks maybe are, you know, developing their resources or setting up to take advantage of uh, other ways to recoup resources while interacting with their opponent. At the same time, my, my cube is much less pushed to the extremes in terms of aggro and control. It's more just flavor of mid-range it's a much lower powered environment uh so a lot of the like really proactive one drop creatures are things that i'm specifically also choosing because they have more relevance in the late game they give you just a lot more flexibility uh in terms of not being an all-in aggro plan so that aspect doesn't make as much sense what i've thought a lot more about and i, I apologize if this sounds like a little bit of a a troll answer but actually you were thinking about the wrong thing <laughs> no what i mean is uh I, I think that the first action a lot of decks are going to take and they're sort of like quote-unquote one drop is playing a tapped land it's andy here from the future editing the podcast just to say that got a very weird issue with the audio coming up here for a second where for some reason switching tabs made the audio speed up a ton I am sorry about that. The issue resolves itself quickly, and I wish I understood computers. That's not a troll answer at all. That's on my list of things. So I was actually going to, at some point, compare, just for rough numbers, the number of one-drops in my cube. I would 100% count a tap mana source as a one-drop. Uh, and you know, it works the same way that all one-drops work, right? Like, in my control deck, I'm pretty happy to play a tap on turn one. The reason I have far fewer tap in my environment is because I don't like drawing them from the top of my deck. I don't like being forced to basically play a tap land. I need my third or fourth mana or whatever. But... I'm very high on one mana cantrips, and a one mana cantrip to find a land is exactly the same as a tap land, right? And right. so that's an important thing to recognize. I mean, exactly the same in this lens. Obviously, it also feels graveyard synergies like Delve, it triggers spells, matter stuff, has does a lot of other things as well. But in terms of just mana development, that's basically a tap land. Um, so playing a tap land on turn one or any turn of the game is basically saying, I'm going to use my mana this turn, this one mana, to improve my mana fixing on later turns of the game. And I think that right. tap lands are exactly, I think it's a very important thing to think of those as one drop spells, basically. Totally. And that 
really is a big part of the entire design of this cube where I really wanted to play with the temples and the man lands and all these other you know lands that do interesting stuff at different points in the game. Uh, so I've deliberately scaled down a lot of the one drops. But how it has evolved is that I've really definitely shied away from that in some aggressive colors because it, it's really, be you know, in, very quickly when I started playing this cube, uh, it became clear how much there being a fastest deck that was pretty quick was really important just to the health of the entire format. So I've definitely shaved a lot of the tapped lands from the more aggressive colors, threw in a few shock lands and other things, and, and supported more one-drops in those colors. Yeah, you mentioned that your environment is less extreme in terms of less aggro and less slow on the control. And I'm not totally sure I agree with that. Like, I think it's a different kind of scale, but it, here's a question. When you sit down to, to play your regular cube, you draft a deck... Do you approach turn zero in an unknown matchup with some sense of like what your deck wants to do, like what your deck's game plan is? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And is part of that, I expect to be the aggressor or I expect to be the not aggressor? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, that's always... I mean, that to me is one of the most interesting parts of the game and especially about playing limited. Um, but what I'm... The, the part that's really like double interesting to me is when there are those moments in a game where it shifts, where right. both players are sort of some kind of mid-range, and you expect to be the beatdown. Oh, but you, you know, because of the draw you had, or because uh, your opponent managed to two-for-one you, suddenly you have to like take a back seat and and start playing the, the control game. Or, you know, that turn where you realize, okay, I actually can start using my resources in a different way, and be the aggressor from this point until something else changes in this game. So I, I think Do you that's... think that happens more often in your cube than in a cube like mine? Well, my gut reaction was yes, but... Uh... <laughs> I, I'm not sure it does, just because, I mean, like, so every time you sit down in a match with the concept of you being the control deck in that match, and again, that doesn't mean you're playing any kind of prescriptive control deck. You don't have to be playing blue, you don't have to be playing board wipes, whatever. Like, it doesn't mean you're meeting any definition of a control deck. It just means that you expect to be the slower of the two decks and want to go to a longer portion of the game. You think your cards are better, more valuable than your opponents, and if you don't lose on tempo, you will eventually win on value. I think anytime you start with that with that assumption and eventually win the game, you had to go through that change you're describing. You had to go through the point where it's like, ah, and now, I, now I'm actually the aggressor now because uh, I'm turning the corner and I actually have a chance to get my opponent dead. Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely true to a degree. Like, I, I guess here's what I'm saying. I think my environment is overall much faster than yours, but I don't necessarily think the range between the fastest and the slowest is a bigger range. I think that whole range is shifted down, but my slowest decks need to have cheap turn one interaction. They need to be fast in a sense in order to keep up with the fast decks, right? And so it's like, I, I don't think that it's maybe as polarized as perhaps you're portraying it. Now, that's an interesting idea. Not that it's slowed down, but that actually just means there's more space for like a more extreme contrast between the really, really slow decks that are like, I might deck myself before I actually find a way to win. Well, that uh, can happen in any cube. Ones. That can happen in the turbo cube. That can happen in the generate micro cube. Sure can. That can happen anywhere. But yeah, I, th I think the other thing you just touched on there is that regardless of what your plan is, still having cheap spells matters. Uh, even if your plan is to be the slower, more controlling deck and you expect to win on the value axis later on, right. you still need to be able to deal with your opponent's one-mana spell. Otherwise, you're just going to be in a, pro in a bad situation. Whether that means, you know, just playing a bigger creature that can block it or having cheap removal or, you know, any any other mana manner of responses. Yeah, I mean, and we'll, we always circle around talking about tempo. It's like a subject that we are always, always talking about to some degree. But I think ultimately, like, the tempo is a is a facet of the environment. And that dictates the playability of threats and answers. So if you have some environment that is just chock full of one mana threats and all the answers start at three, 
the answers are all just bad. They're unplayable. They can be the best three-man answers ever printed, things that see play in legacy and vintage or whatever. But if it's an environment where the tempo dictates that you have to be able to answer things much sooner, it doesn't matter how good those individual spells are. You can put... You could print three mana, you know, destroy three target creatures. Well, that's that's getting a bit of that's an exaggeration. It's a bit of an exaggeration, maybe, but it's it's going to be a lot worse. So, anyway, I, I I'm not sure that our cubes are that different in, in that regard. I think that you do have to in both in both environments start the game with a plan. I, I I've never drafted your cube and started the game thinking, well, in some really mid rangey cubes, I do not start the game with a sense of like what my plan is relative to my opponent i'm not thinking i'm a faster slow deck i'm just like i'm gonna try and cast my cards on curve and hope that that shapes up into something reasonable i don't love playing cubes like that because i feel like it does come down to card quality and luck a little more often than when you actually have a focused plan but that's what a lot of retail limited is would you agree that in a lot of retail limited you don't really sit down turn zero and think i'm the aggressor or i'm not the aggressor i mean i think there are other facets to having a plan that are not just just am I the aggressor or not? Like, I I don't think that limited is at that point where it's just like, we're just going to, you know, draw our cards and see what happens and make the best of it. But it definitely is less extreme in terms of, you know, I have a bunch of red one drops. My plan is to try and deploy these in the first three turns and get my opponent dead as quickly as possible. Like that's a much more extreme version of having a plan. I haven't played very much retail limited over the pandemic. So I'm out of touch with modern, with contemporary retail limited sets. But when I think back to a thing to a set like War of the Spark, for example, that was the kind of set where there wasn't, to my memory, like a very defined aggro deck. And so it very much was like, all right, I'm gonna draft whatever colors seem open, wherever colors I'm getting past the best cards in. I'm gonna put them in my deck and I'm gonna hope to, you know, draw them and play them on curve. I don't mean to minimize how much strategic complexity is involved there, because there is a lot of complexity. It's just that that complexity unfolds before you when you start with your opening hand and see what your opponent does. You don't start with any footing of where you expect the game to go which you then have to adjust as the game evolves yeah i mean i i think there's still degrees of it but but i see what you're saying anyway so the one drops in my cube I, as i mentioned i have a lot of cheap threats in my aggressive colors because i want my aggressive decks to be able to start with a cheap threat and it's hard to overstate how much i value the cheap threat anything on turn one is better than nothing on turn one in these aggro decks that threatens your opponent so i play what some people would probably call sketchier aggressive one drops specifically ones that have value in the late game so a good example of that is something like fairy guide mother i know a lot of cube designers at my power level don't like fairy guide mother because they're like oh it's a one mana one one it's not good enough i like it because in the in the games where i have no other one drop i'm happy to play a turn one 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 flyer because it's going to get in there for a three four five damage it's going to be like a pretty significant you know lava spike basically to my opponent's face because it's got flying and they're not gonna have a flying blocker that early they're not gonna want to spend a removal spell on it and it has the late game value of being able to jump something with that sorcery speed combat trick like effect on the adventure side which makes it better in the late game than drawing you know an isamara hound of conda which would have been maybe a little better on turn one than fairy guide mother was so all by means of saying i have a lot of density of cheap threats in those colors because I really value having something to do on turn one. And this is where that difference between one and two mana, I think, is really prominent. You know, I think the best start for an aggressive deck in my environment is generally turn one, one drop, turn two, two more one drops. <laughs> that is so much better than turn one, one drop, turn two, two drop, or God forbid, turn one, nothing, turn two, two drop. Uh, just having that many more threats, that much more power in play uh, puts your opponent under a much faster clock than anything else. So the fact that you could play two of these alongside each other two one drops alongside each other is very different than playing a two drop 
Do you think it's actually more powerful, though? Because a two-drop is going to be, you know, for the most part across the board, more powerful than a one-drop, just in terms of what yeah, the card does. for sure. So it's kind of card disadvantage to say, I'm going to play these cheaper cards that I can deploy faster, but, like, overall, the amount of stuff that your deck can do is less. Like, if those were just six mana spells, the total amount of power in the deck would be so much higher, right? Yeah, and it, it that is kind of like a heuristic that obviously changes depending on the actual board state. Like, in my white weenie deck... I'm going to go turn to Thalia because Thalia mm -hmm. on turn two is so oppressive against so many decks that are going to try and cast non-creature spells to draw cards or turn the corner or remove stuff that that's worth it over it, any two sort of equal one drops. But basically, I guess the way to look at it is that the, the aggro decks in my environment are trying to win on tempo. They're not, they don't really care about card advantage or card disadvantage right, of course. for the most part in the early game. And so if you take any two one drops and just combine them into one two drop card that gave the effect of producing those two tokens or doing whatever those two one drops did, that'd be better than almost any two drop in my cube, just in terms of raw power level. Huh. Why it's not is because it costs you two cards, but if you're the aggressor and you're in the early portion of the game and you haven't, you don't have a whiff of being in the mirror or something, what you're trying to do is abuse that tempo as much as possible, throw cards, turn cards into board presence, into tempo, into, into life lost from your opponent as quickly as you can. That's interesting. So I, I feel like, to me, the more relevant part seems just like the sequencing flexibility. Like, if we instead just thought about That's this very relevant too, perspective yeah. on an aggro deck, you know, you're trying to cast your spells on curve, use all your mana every turn, and get your opponent dead. What if you were just guaranteed to say, you are going to have a one drop, and then a two drop, and then a three drop, and you're going to be able to use all your mana every turn? Wouldn't you still be favored just to have those more expensive spells? Sure, yeah. So if you're, you're saying, like, if you could basically always guarantee you're going to curve out perfectly... Right. Then, yeah, you probably just want that over playing one drop, one drop, one drop, one drop, one drop, one drop, and just, like, you know... And then running out of cards. And like, that, that's where the fact that, like, it is sort of, in a way, a kind of card disadvantage to be running these cheaper cards, which do less. Yes. And then, in some senses, like, again, this is it's a heuristic, again, that is... There's all sorts of reasons to abandon that heuristic, but the... Oftentimes, if you do have a two-drop in hand, you'll play that on turn two just because the one-drops you might have in hand are going to allow you to use up all your mana on the next turn right, of the game right. as well. Whereas if you were to go one-drop, 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 and then you're stuck with two twos in hand, now you can't play two two-drops on turn three because you only have three mana. If you had gone two-drop, you could go two-drop, one-drop on this turn. So there's a lot of considerations, but... I think that's really the critical piece where, again, we're saying these spells cost the atomic unit of mana. It can't yes. be less than that, which means you can always fit them into your curve. If you have a, only two drops in your deck, you draw two drops, you can play one on turn two, you're not going to be able to play two on turn three. You're going to lose a mana. And yeah. that's really what so many games come down to is just who can yeah. actually use their mana completely inefficiently. Uh, so the fact that one mana spells can both be played on turn one, so you're you know not losing that turn one mana, mm -hmm. uh, and then also on turn three, fill in your curve. And I think it's also relevant to think that when we're just talking about the relevance of cheap spells because they let you sequence your turns to use all your, your mana, the two drops are also very important. It's just like the, the further you go down the scale, the more difficult it is to fit in all these different mana costs. So And they're big steps in my, in and my they're, eyes. They're huge they're steps. They're very, yeah. very big steps. So a one mana spell can always fit into any curve. Uh, a two mana spell sometimes can. And then I think it is relevant that if you have uh, just a, a combination of two and threes is still going to be better than just twos because you can cast a turn two spell, a turn three, three drop, and then if you turn get four, up to two, two drops, right. Yeah. And then turn five, you can play a two and a three. So there's like always opportunity to double spell and use all your mana all the way up the curve. So I think that, yeah, ones are, you know, the most flexible twos fit in a lot of spaces. 
threes kind of work well with twos. And then beyond that, things are, you know, hopefully your spells are doing a lot because you're committing th- a whole you're turn. You're committing a turn to them, right? Yeah. I wonder if there's some complicated math we could do here. We should, we can get Jed on the line. I feel like we could do some some uh, some simulations, basically, to say, like, all right, the, the goal is using all of your mana on the first four turns of the game, right? Uh, that's the goal. And we're not going to, and we're going to like simulate games with just curves of cards. Doesn't matter what the cards do, just some number of one drops, some number of two drops, some number of three drops, or whatever, and see what different curves will use all of their mana on the first couple turns of the game and make a graph basically like uh, this many decks have fallen off by turn four, five, six in terms of using all their mana, either because they ran out of cards, because if mm-hmm. you have a deck of all one drops, it will use all of its mana every single turn of the game, but will be out of cards by turn four basically every game pretty much unless you you're stuck on two lands uh and then decks with much more expensive cards will be better in that sort of mid to late game this is a simulation we've got to do i think i think we can make this happen we can do that so we have the technology but all that is a great example of why one drops are so important because if you are trying to use your mana efficiently and this can be either proactive as an aggressive deck or reactively right if you want to be able to play a mana rock and also remove your opponent's threat if your removal spell costs two mana you're gonna to have to wait a whole other turn before you could do that than if you just have a one-mana removal spell. You have your Disfigure, you have your Fatal Push, or whatever. So my aggressive decks are all using those sort of cheap one-mana threats. Something else I want to mention here, which I think is important to this, this the fact of the one-mana spell being the atomic unit of the mana system, is that it's really difficult to get out-tempoed when your spells cost one mana. Which is to say that we've talked before about how it is a tempo disadvantage if you have some sort of game exchange occur... You are even on cards, you one for one to each other, two for two to each other, whatever, but you are down mana, then your opponent gained a tempo advantage because they were able to presumably do other stuff with that mana instead of just, you know, doing nothing. So you play a five mana creature, your opponent destroys it with a two mana removal spell and plays a three mana creature. And now you've lost in that exchange because you that extra three mana that you spent on that creature that was removed completely by a two mana removal spell, your opponent could do something else with, whatever they were doing with. So that's a good heuristic. It's like you don't generally want to be down mana in exchanges. When you're playing things that cost one mana, either, again, threats or answers, it's very hard to be down mana in those exchanges. It's possible. Your one drop can eat half of a forked bolt, and then that was kind of like half of a mana it cost to remove your thing. You got mental misstepped or gut shot. You got mental step. You got you got gut shot. You got you do have some things. And that that's can... why gut shot is the most powerful magic card. It's a true statement. <laughs> so it's possible, but it's not very common in most magic for that to be the case. And so, in addition to everything else we already said about smoothing out your curve, on a pure power level perspective. Playing one mana threats and answers is a good way to just insulate yourself against tempo losses. Uh, you know, you're using all your mana, and in exchanges on the board, you are generally going to be doing pretty well in terms of mana exchanges. An important thing that you kind of alluded to is that, especially when it comes to threats, your one mana threats might just be brick walled at some point by your opponent's three drop. They play a Brimaz, and if you don't have a removal spell for it, any number of one drops you played on the turns prior are now going to be stonewalled and effectively removed for the time being. Like, they're kind of effectively under some O-ring that says they can't attack or block because they're just going to die uh, as long as this Brimaz is around. And that's a kind of virtual card advantage that's important to think about. Or your opponent, you know, board wipes or something. Those can, those situations can come up where uh, there's a sort of big swing in the other direction. Similarly, your cheap removal spells, at some point, just don't kill the big enough stuff, right? Like, I love Disfigure. I love Shock. I love Fatal Push. But they don't kill five drops, basically, at all. And so... At some point, those become card disadvantage because they're just cards that don't do anything in your hand anymore because they don't remove stuff. And so that is the sort of flip side of that coin is that it's hard to lose out in tempo 
on game states, but it's easy to lose value at some point because you effectively have to have card disadvantage because you're playing worse, cheaper cards than your opponent is. Right, and I think that tension is really meaningful. So if I can just go ahead and contradict everything we've been saying. So yes, one mana spells are in many cases in a lot of contexts very powerful. They're very important to players' plans. I don't think that's necessarily universal to all formats. So especially if we look at, you know, maybe this isn't as true in limited sets from the last year or two, but a little bit further back, one drops really just weren't that important because yeah. because they didn't uh, provide that value. They just weren't generally worth a card because if you play a one mana one one, uh, it's great that you use your mana efficiently, but you're going to lose out on the, the value axis when your opponent just plays a two mana two two that you now can no longer block. And in basically every limited environment, in the past 20 years, one man, or two mana tutus are a thing to expect. Right, for sure. So I, th I think that as much as one drops are important in the sense that we should think about them and consider as cube designers how they fit into environments and as players how they form sort of the fundamental first action of our plan, I don't think that means uh, you as a cube designer need to go out and say, okay, well, because these are important, I need to add a ton of them to my cube. If you are just interested well, I'd in that, for that, if you're interested <laughs> in that slower format, like whatever sort of mana curve, whatever you choose to put in the cube, there's still going to be an optimal way to draft, and your players will do their best to figure that out. I, I don't think you need to say, well, we need to have more of this because it makes the, the games fundamentally better. No, definitely not. Absolutely not. I, I do think that they tend to be powerful, and if you look at especially bigger pool constructed formats, the curves are lower and lower and lower because uh, right, yeah. the bigger pool you have, if you're just trying to power optimize, you will just play more cheaper cards as much as you possibly can. Maybe this goes without saying, but when you're designing a cube, you probably have in mind sort of a curve of what, you're, what you expect decks to look like in terms of the, the mm -hmm. mana cost they're going to be playing. And it does make sense to you know reflect that curve in the whole cube itself. So if you expect, if your desire is to have a cube where decks are playing a ton of one drops, a couple two drops, a couple three drops, that's what sort of the whole makeup of the the cube should look like. If anything, even a little more exaggerated, I think, in that regard. Uh, if if you have the exact same curve in a cube that you expect to be in your decks, then like yeah, on average, that's what people will get. But you want to give your players the power to draft those lower curving environments, and so they will oftentimes need uh, even a higher density of low curve stuff to make sure they have the cheap stuff because the more expensive stuff is easier to come across. Is it easier to come across just because? Like, if it truly matched 100%, you know, the, the distribution of mana costs and, you know, types of effects that you wanted, wouldn't everything be equally desirable? I, I guess in theory, I guess what happens in practice is that, like, the things that higher up on the curve end up being more flexible to go in different kinds of decks. Like, I don't know. I don't know is the answer. Okay. I, Ultimately, there's some wiggle room because in, in most cubes, you're not uh, literally playing every single card in all decks, so... Uh, I think it's a, a good heuristic to, to sort of trend towards, but it is not an absolute rule and things aren't going to be broken if uh, if you err a little I, bit in one side I or I guess what other. I mean, if you have like, uh, if you if you take into account the variance of the packs, just how things are going to break down and how you're going to get past stuff, if you want to, when your players don't get the perfect draft, they don't get the perfect average of the curve in your environment, if you want them to be able to trend towards the lower curve instead of trending towards the higher curve, then you want to trade your environment that way because when things go off the rails and you have a pack that has all your one drops in it and you have to pass it and then all your one drops get taken before the wheel, then you'd rather have more of the cheap stuff than more of the expensive stuff in general. Maybe we could just say, you love one drops. Uh, I love so one drops. You should, play as look, many, uh, you should play a lot of what you love. Look, this, this comes down to much more subjective stuff. The reason I like one drops is because 
I maintain that one of the most fun things in Magic is just taking game actions. It sounds so silly. And we talk a lot about things that are kind of talking about power level and how to balance your cube and how to think approach your cube as a spike-minded player. But honestly, I really feel like doing stuff, casting spells, drawing cards, taking game actions is just fun. That's if just, you're not, I mean, that's what the game that's is. The if game. you're not taking it's game actions, it's called a game action for a reason. <laughs> and so it may sound silly, but like you could just double the cost of every single spell in my environment and like you've you've been a big proponent of like the costs don't actually matter right the numbers are all made up you could just change them all and who would care right and this like that that like texture of sequencing is where that idea does really break down so i'm glad we're talking about this right it's good to talk about like and so the reason i really like one mana spells is not only because I'm trying to make my cube powerful, right? Like, I'm not just trying to power max my cube, and that's why I came across cheap spells. I used to define my cube as, like, my cube is very powerful. It's a legacy vintage cube or whatever. Here are the cards that are too powerful, but everything else you should assume is included, other than stuff I put on this, like, short, too powerful list. The number of cards I don't play, but I think would be perfectly competitively viable, they'd be very good in my cube, is is very long. Like, I, there's a lot of cards I'm just not playing because I don't like their play patterns, even though I think they're there at a power level reason. So... I think a lot about play patterns, and the reason I include so many one drops is largely for a play pattern thing. Do I think Fairy Guidemother is one of the best 360 cards in Magic's history in terms of a pure power max cube like mine? I don't know, but I really like the fact that it's a one mana spell that I can play on turn one or it does something reasonable later in the game. And that's the reason it's included in my environment because I want my players to get to making relevant strategic game decisions as soon as possible. And you could just double everything and say, all right, well, now. We got to keep passing back and forth and drawing cards and playing lands. And then we sequence things much more slowly. And a lot of magic would still hold up, right? You'd still have all the same questions of tempo and value and card evaluation. Like, it's not like the game is is completely altered, but I think it's just much less fun. I think it's more fun to just do stuff. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Everybody likes to take game actions. And for all the... We, you know, have kind of been portraying this as like, I love one drops and you're like, uh, you prefer to play a tap land, you know, here. You're no, like- I, I love this. I feel much better about I, th- this framing actually just uh, makes more clear a lot of the stuff that I've thought about, maybe not as clearly, where I, again, like, I just really do love like the man lands and the temples. I think they're great magic cards and mm-hmm, I enjoy playing mm-hmm, with them. Mm-hmm. And I do find There's a lot more of joy. game actions on cards in your deck because exactly. otherwise lands don't have game actions. Yeah, on that's them. that's the correct way to evaluate a, a cube is game actions the per card. Game actions per card. How many game actions per deck can you jam in there? But but a lot of what I do enjoy is that kind of sequencing where it's like okay, well I have a tap land that I want to play turn one, and then turn three I expect to play this two drop. So if I don't draw another untapped land, I'm gonna plan my sequence, and that's gonna count as using one of my three mana on turn three. Right. Exactly. So, but anyway, I was going to say that both of our cubes, yours included, have only trended lower in terms of converted mana cost. And I think at some point when you first started your cube, you had almost no one drops. Now you have quite a few. You have like two thirds of the one drops I have in terms of one drop count. You have a couple extra cards in your cube. It's not a, it's not a straight 360, but we've both trended down in terms of our overall mana cost. And for me, I don't see that trend changing. I'm not sure if you expect at some point to start raising the mana curve on the cards in your cube now that you present the idea i feel obligated to try it <laughs> but no, a, what a, a true contrarian a true natural contrarian what i'm also observing just again looking at this uh list thinking about it in these terms is that there are a lot of one mana spells that i just don't expect players to play on turn one uh and i, I think that's somewhat intentional that it's more about getting to those double spell turns that i think right. are really like a lot of interesting magic comes down to those turns uh, and so Sure, you're not going to be bubble snaring. You're not going to be fungal infection turning 
fungal infectioning turn one. But because those cheap spells can fit into the curve later on, uh, it does just create a lot of interesting gameplay. Yeah, and just to like, again, hammer home the whole like, this is not directly tied to power level thing. I would much rather play a lower power cube that still has a very low curve, right? Like, give me fungal infections, give me bubble snares, give me these like cheap threats or these cheap answers that are still affordable. They're not super powerful. Like that just still, I think, leads to the kinds of magic turns I like to take. Uh, And I I agree with you completely on that. One specific type of one mana card I want to talk about that I have a lot of in my cube, but I don't think you have any in your cube. Maybe you have one. You have Duress still in your cube, right? Duress is in there. Uh, I think there's a Mind Rot variant, but... I was was going to say one mana Hand Disruption is a particularly interesting card type because... This is a great example of, I think, that sort of switch hitter mentality of what these kind of one-drops can do. So in some matchups with some decks, I'm very happy to Thoughtseize my opponent on turn one. Generally, that's if I am a more controlling or mid-rangey deck. And what I either want is I want to mess up their curve so that they stumble and I can survive later into the game so I can draw my board wipes and draw my better cards and eventually win out. Or actually, I want like to do that and also get a little bit of information about what they're doing so I can inform my further plays. If I'm a pure aggro deck, I will very happily put Hand Hate in there. I love Hand Disruption in my aggro decks. I do not want to play it on turn one. I want to lead the first turn on a threat, and ideally the next turn, a threat plus a Thought Seize. Because what I want to do is get the pressure on, which makes the Hand Hate that much more potent. If I just sit there and start hating my opponent's uh, hands, then by the time I'm playing my threats... You're not actually going to take advantage of that tempo... uh... Right disparity that you're trying to create right exactly so like thought seizes and inquisition of causalex and duresses and all this kind of stuff those cards i think are great examples of their one mana spells that i expect different decks to play at different parts of the game ideally and in the aggressive deck that's not turn one i want to be leading on a threat so that while i'm messing up your hand you're also your life total is also being drained by my threat that i put in play on turn one Ideally, I put into play a Knight of the Ebon Legion, then turn two, I can shock in a shock land, thought sees you, lose for a life, and then it gets a plus one, plus one counter without having to pump it. The first time someone did that to me, I was confused (sighs) and upset. that That card, I put Knight of the Ebon Legion in my cube kind of skeptically. I was like, I don't know. It doesn't seem that good. It's only got one power. It's got a lot of mana to pump it. And it's probably... I think one of the best aggressive one drops in my entire cube across all colors. I think it goes like Ragavan, Goblin Which Guide, is hardly probably a, hardly a magic card. I still Ragavan is still ridiculous. <laughs> I, I do I do have one last point before we wrap up here about Ragavan specifically. But anyway, I think Knight of the Epilation is up there in terms of just raw power level for aggro one drops. The card is so great. I love it so much. Just dismember something. Oh, attack. It's great. On the point of Ragavan, this is the, my last salvo for one mana cards and why I love them so much. Is Ragavan the best one-mana threat ever printed? I assume so. I think we can pretty safely say that at this point here today in 2021, August uh, 28th. Yeah, I mean, give it a week or two. <laughs> give, but... it, give it a, a year. I mean, we might have something that's better. I mean, you could put, like, Deathrite Shaman up there in terms in, in different constructed formats. If you have tons of fetches running around, Deathrite Shaman's pretty oppressive. Obviously, Delver of Secrets is an iconic one-drop. But I think Ragavan probably in a vacuum in most most formats takes the cake for just raw power level still dies to everything we've had this conversation before if you put one mana spells in in your environment they are basically never going to take over the entire game which is a risk you do run with three four five mana spells of the relevant power level in your environment because those spells are more committal and if you're playing a, a five drop that people are gonna 
take highly in the draft. They're going to excitedly put in their deck. They're going to try to cast. The things that make a player go through all those hoops and try and cast a five drop, even in a slower environment, like this is all within your control as a designer, obviously, but even in a slower environment, it's got to be a, a big payoff because your players are going to make a big commitment to basically get that big payoff. And the one mana spells, while they, uh, they insulate you from that sort of board-based tempo losses, they uh, help you like, manage your curve, they let you take more game actions. And also, I just think that more cheap spells, especially one mana spells, minimizes the like blowouty kinds of games that can happen sometimes, which I personally don't love. I don't love when non-games of magic happen. And I found that the more I've lowered my curve and the more I've put emphasis on one mana spells, the less that happens because the best one mana spells are still worse than almost every two mana spell. Almost, yeah. I mean, there's there's a couple weird exceptions where it's like, oh, do I want a more expensive card that's better than Ragavan? I don't know if you're going to find many. <laughs> well, the thing about Ragavan is it's also it's a two-drop. It's also drop. a two-drop. <laughs> so it's a one-drop, it's a two-drop. Oh, and it pays for itself. Oh, boy, it's, it's kind of a messed up card. On the subject of one mana, I also want to advocate for one mana activations. Uh, yeah, this doesn't fit get in there. The same role, obviously, in terms of like filling out your curve in the very early game. But I really love, uh, you know, equipment or creatures with activated abilities. Uh, anything that costs one to activate, I find plays really, really well, just because it does in those later turns let you use your mana as efficiently as possible. And to sort of argue in a different direction than we have been uh, so far, I actually like one mana activated abilities a lot more in a lot of cases than free abilities. Even though it, it's I know where you're like going with this. less powerful, it's you don't actually make a decision about a lot of free abilities. If you have a Merfolk Looter, you're just going to loot every turn. Uh, so yes, you're taking more game actions, but you're not taking more game decisions in a meaningful way. Uh, so I like just having a cheap cost that is that atomic unit that can be fit into your curve, but does ask you to pay a real cost. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. It makes a lot of sense from a cube design perspective. It offers your players more strategic decisions, but less game actions. And <laughs> I got to say, if, if you had to make me choose between game actions and strategic decisions, I'm probably going to take game actions most of the time. Like, wow. I would rather get to loot every turn and be able to not have to make a decision of do I loot this turn or not, because it just gives me more cards to get, look at and more cards to see. And that's just more fun for me. I Also, it's just, there's that bummer effect of like, I can't do both. Like, I have these two things and I just I can't do both. That's part of it. I know that's part of it. I know it is. And like... I wouldn't advocate for just like having every spell cost zero mana and the yeah, whole point can, of we can play the whole point of the mana system, like the whole point of the mana system is essentially just a, a structural way to say you can't do both. Like that's the whole thing. But it's nice that that would be great flavor text on <laughs> Richard Garfield PhD. <laughs> but it's it's nice that that is built into the game in a way that there's expectations set about it. When you read a card with one mana activation, obviously you're just thinking about how fun it's going to be activate it and not all the turns where. It's not actually going to be correct to activate it, and it's just going to feel bad, you know? Anyway, that's one mana spells, which eventually ended up being a lot about tempo, as it always is, and just generally about cube design theory. Well, that's it for us here at Lucky Paper Radio. Thanks to DJ James Nasty for producing all the music you hear on the show. Thanks to Wizards of the Coast for producing all the magic cards we play with and enjoy, and the ones we don't enjoy. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Anthony, it's been a pleasure talking about magic with you. It's been good to talk to uh, magic. Feels like it's been a long time since we recorded because we did do the like pseudo recording last week, and I think the week before we had recorded. We did it really in, early in, in preparation of Pre- uh, preparing for the for the weekend. So it's been a while since we actually did a normal episode, but it is genuinely a pleasure to talk about magic. With you. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>